today's reading is a poem titled Hermitage by Joseph Bassano. It's true there were times when it was too much, and I slipped off in the first light for its last hour and drove up through the crooked way of the valley and swam out to those ruins on an island. Blackbirds were the only music in the spruces, and the stars, as they faded out, offered themselves to me like glasses of water ringing by the empty linens of the dead. When Delilah watched the dark hair of her lover tumble, she did not shatter. When Abraham relented, he did not relent. Still, I would tell you of the humbling and awakening. I would tell you of the wild hours of surrender when the river stripped the cove stones from the margin and the blackbirds built their strict songs in the high pines, when the great nests swayed the lattice of the branches, the moon's brute music touching them with fire. And you, there, stranger in the sway of it, what would you have done there, in the ruins, when they rose from you? When the burning wings ascended, when the old ghosts shook the music from your branches, and the great lie of your one sweet life was lifted. Thank you, Crystal. One great lie of your sweet life was lifted. What wonderful words. I've been spending a lot of time with my dog. There he is right up there, surveying some threat in the distance at Veterans Park. <laughs> Many of you know my husband and I adopted a year-old puppy just before my sabbatical started uh, this past late winter. He's a highly energetic, non-stop, springy, friendly, and equally aloof Catahoula Cur, a hunting, herding, swamp dog originating in Louisiana that's known to climb trees. That kind of dog is sounding like a lot of work. Yes, he is, indeed. Dog training and entering into the whole wide world of dog titling is a sermon for another day. But what I've appreciated most about this new canine relationship is that I'm outside a lot. I don't know about you, but I'm always one of those folks that enjoys the outdoors, but you would never really know it. And bugs just love and that makes my adventures outside that much more special. But it's true. Some of the most profound memories and experiences of mine include the outdoors. Ascending and descending mountains and glaciers in Montana with my husband. The untamed, bramble-filled brush of Australia clashing head-on with the tropical forests. The forest amble that started down the block from my house in Concord, Massachusetts that led right to Walden Pond. Some you use would call a holy site in our religious tradition. And of course, not just those grand adventures, but simple moments too. The time of the skippers is just a couple months away here in Kentucky, my favorite time of year. Every evening as the sun sets, the bats display their acrobatic soar here and there as they devour mosquitoes and other pests. The moment after a rainfall, when the world somehow looks and in these days where droughts are more common, that is an especially welcomed experience. 
Having this dog in our lives means I get to see these things and many more up close more often. It also means that I'm working on my neighborly skills, walking the dog through the neighborhood. It's probably where I'm the most big city coming from Chicago in my personality. Neighborliness is not second nature to me. A few days ago, it was a dewy morning, just having had an overnight rainfall and a gentle fog was lifting here and there. There were gray skies above. And the green of the grass and the trees and plants was more radiant than ever. No one was outside with us. The morning was ours. Now, I was a never a podcast person at all. I never really got into it, but my sabbatical changed that. And that morning, I was listening to one of my favorite religion podcasts, and I'm sure you'll want to know it. It's called The Bible for Normal People. <laughs> it's hosted by two theologians who break down what the Bible really is and shatter all of our preconceptions about it. Those are Christians and non-Christians, those are literalists and non-literalists alike. It's helped me reclaim that complicated book and look at it in a new light. But I digress. Listening to another great episode, there was a moment where my phone just stopped out of nowhere for no particular reason. It just stopped. The episode stopped. And while likely just a mishap, it was the most welcome thing that morning. Because there they were. The moment the sound of my ears stopped, there they were. The sounds of morning. I stopped dead in my tracks. The dog stopped looking at me, wondering what was wrong. And I just took it all in. Crickets surrounded us, singing their morning song. The dog, the sound of him sniffing the air, birds chirping and singing, and the sound of wings flapping through the trees, gentle drops of water falling on the canopy of leaves above, the chatter of creatures unknown, and a light breeze. I hadn't noticed the smell of petrichor infused in everything in a long time, but there it was the warm sweetness of the nearby honeysuckle plant. I felt at once incredibly small. And as Ralph Waldo Emerson once noted, I felt myself standing on the bare ground, my head bathed by the blithe air, and uplifted into infinite space. All mean egotism vanished. Call it a spiritual experience, call it transcendent, call it what you will. It was an intimate noticing of the natural world, a connection, a bond, but probably something deeper and greater than that, a recognition of how interwoven and inseparable it all is. If you try to force moments like that, it simply doesn't happen. It's like new Buddhist students are like, I'm waiting for enlightenment, and it doesn't come until they're so fed up. There it is. If you're at once disarmed but needing it, it arrives. When was the last time you felt a connection to the world in such a way? A connection to life. When you've experienced it, it changes the rest of your day. I put away the headphones that morning when it happened. I took notice of things I often find to be less than remarkable. Have you ever noticed how a dog interacts and experiences the world? Nose first. <laughs> or a rabbit. Or a red-winged blackbird. The poem we heard earlier, Hermitage, by Joseph Fasano, gets close to this feeling in the world, this way of being and moving, this experience. 
Of the poem, Joseph Pisano writes, I imagine everyone knows how it feels when a certain illusion by which he or she has lived suddenly is lifted, and a consequent combination of ecstasy and terror. As for those blackbirds, I can't argue with Whitman. The thrush's song is as gorgeous as it gets, but I've always been stopped in my tracks by the red-winged blackbird, that song with its hard edges and sweeping geometries, which seem to say something about the logic and the chaos. One of you had the opportunity to notice the sweeping geometries of a songbird, or had a great lie lifted from your one sweet life. What excuses do you have for never experiencing or not recently experiencing such a moment? I don't have the time! There's a great lie. But my life is complicated. All of our lives are complicated. The rain falls on us all, the sun shines on everyone, and you're in it. We spend a considerable amount of time in Western culture reinforcing lines between humanity and nature. We speak and act as if nature is something we go into, something we seek, a destination. For my dog, there is no separation. For the mystics and hermits of the great traditions of the world, there's no separation too. Gets my dog some good company. <laughs> but here's the good news. As Unitarian Universalists, we're in good company, too. Unitarian Universalists in 2022 enter into the transcendent or mindfulness or what have you through many means. But we also have an invitation baked right into who we are as a tradition. And once you notice it, suddenly, this peculiar tradition of ours, Unitarian Universalism, is dripping with opportunities to connect and be mindful. Now, of course, speaking of the transcendentalists. Most Americans have a passing familiarity with at least one great transcendentalist. More often than not, it's Henry David Thoreau, sometimes Louisa May Alcott or Emerson. The rest are, more often than not, simply forgotten. Many a high school student has found a, a book Walden plopped right in front of them, and what follows is a methodical deep dive into 19th century prose. Some themes are lifted up, and then you move on. The book is indeed laborious. The detailed accounts that Thoreau puts in there of his expenditures, it makes the eyes glaze over. <laughs> and it's also a book that's filled with Thoreau's little darlings. It meanders here and there and here and there, but the core of it invites us to confront our place in nature, our interwovenness with everything. We often hear the opening words of Walden. I'm sure a few of you could rattle off a handful, if not more, of those words. It is a romanticized passage. Ah, we are taught, look at these words, a life in the woods. How charming. But look closer, and you find the blade of a critic, the blade of a prophet, slicing through the illusions of modern life. At least modern life in the 19th century. Thoreau writes, I went to the woods because I wished to live deliberately, to front only the essential facts of life, and see if I could not learn what it had to teach, and not, when I came to die, discover that I had not lived. I did not wish to live what was not life. Living is so dear. Nor did I wish to practice resignation unless it was quite necessary. I wanted to live deep and suck out all the marrow of life 
to live so sturdily and Spartan-like as to put to rout all that was not life, to cut a broad swath and shave close, to drive life into a corner and reduce it to its lowest terms, and if it proved to be mean, why then to get the whole and genuine meanness of it and publish its meanness to the world? Or if it were sublime, to know it by experience and be able to give a true account of it to the whole world. For most of humanity, it appears to me, are in a strange uncertainty about it, meaning life, whether it is the devil or God, and have somewhat hastily concluded that it is the chief end of man to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So disconnected was dear Henry David Thoreau that he needed to drive life into a corner and figure out if it was mean or sublime. So shallow was his experience, he felt this experiment would show him how to suck out the marrow of life. And that last line calls the task the prevailing religious sentiment of his time, but one that exists to this day. Thoreau didn't want to just resign himself to living life for the glory of God and some eventual afterlife of bliss. That this life is only a test. Just to get through it, just get through it. Suffer today for another world tomorrow when you die. This was not an experiment to see if he could live by his own means alone. The bean patch he grew behind his shed was not enough to sustain one person. The local economy of fellow forest and lake dwellers was okay, but not good enough. But what we know is that Thoreau would walk into town, right, often, and go to the pub and drink pint after pint and bring home goodie baskets from his mom. <laughs> it wasn't about self-sufficiency. It wasn't about disconnection from humanity either, but rather it was about reconnecting to both life and humanity. He recounts how he had far deeper connections to people once the trappings of modern life were mostly gone. How does that resonate with you now? Have you ever seen those folks at restaurants that are obviously together, but their whole experience is... Well, it's riveted. Today, I imagine Henry David Thoreau would buy that, what we now call a dumb phone. No texting, no Facebook, no email for him. But chiefly, his experience at Walden Pond was about finding those moments of interwovenness. And when he left the pond, he remarked, I left the woods for as good a reason as I went there. Perhaps it seemed to me that I had several more lives to live and could not spare any more time for that one. It is remarkable how easily and insensibly we fall into a particular, particular route and make beaten tracks for ourselves. And therein is something illuminating for us right now. There is not one answer to our modern predicament. The separation we have from nature or our own lives, but with mindfulness and with intention, we can reconnect. And with creativity, we can keep finding ways to renew that energy, to suck out the marrow of life. For us as Unitarian Universalists, the transcendentalists remind us, remind us of this, but it is not unique to us. Last week, we explored Thomas Merton, showing us a way into and through the troubling times we live in. But Merton also taught us how to take notice, but to take notice in a way that was truly present. 
Sometimes nature writing or reflection makes it sound like the rain or the flowers are and the birds are just for you, only for you. Oh, this natural world belongs to you and you alone. Thomas Merton, this was not the case. The natural world is without justification, without pretense, without motive. The gifts we derive from noticing are important indeed. Don't ignore them. But we should never imagine it's just for us. We should also never imagine that we have to have a reason for those moments of connection. In another one of my favorite collections of his, Raids on the Unspeakable, it's called. It's a great title, Raids on the Unspeakable. Probably my number one favorite book of Merton's. He reflects on a rainy day on the grounds of Gethsemane Abbey. And he calls to task those who keep saying, oh, Merton's out there just to have fun. That it's an adventure, a grand experiment. Look at this monk living in a hut. In Thoreau's time, people would call him a fool. In Merton's time, it was somehow charming. But Merton didn't care. Can't I just be in the woods without any special reason, he writes. Just being in the woods at night in the cabin is something too excellent to be justified or explained. Thoreau tried to give words to his experience, but Merton says no, it needs no justification. We are not having fun, he continues, we're not having anything out here. Drives home what both writers are getting at. No separation between us and the natural world. And their lives, their experiments were reminders to notice. Simply notice. So what? Henry David Thoreau and Thomas Merton or Reverend Ryan's dog have to say to us today. We who are overworked, overcommitted, crawling out of a pandemic with the foundations around us feeling quite rocky, if not crumbling. So what? I would say it's because we need to find that center, this moment, more than ever. I need not list the things that we're all facing as a country, as a people, as a world. And the future will always be unknown to us. There will always be something to fret about. And we will worry. It's what we do. But we also need to find a center, a pause, a place of renewal. Thomas Merton gives us his own answer. The rain has stopped, he writes. The afternoon sun slants through the pine trees, and how those useless needles smell in the clear air. A dandelion, long out of season, has pushed itself into bloom between the smashed leaves of last summer's daylilies. The valley resounds with the totally uninformative talk of creeks and wild water. And the quails begin their sweet whistling in the wet bushes. Their noise is absolutely useless, and so is the delight I take in it. There is nothing I would rather hear, not because it is a better noise than all the other noises, because it is the voice of the present moment, the present festival. So, dear friends, may we delight in the present moment, this moment, right here. May it be so. Blessed be. Amen. Amen. Amen.